Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 114 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And uh, I had a bit of problems with my laptop, so I had some uh, delays in uploading this episode. So what I'm going to do is upload this one and then quickly turn around and upload episode 115. So this week... um, at long last, it's been a long haul, but we have the final uh, panel sessions from the Canadian Mining Symposium, and uh, that will do it for all our uh, conference material that we've been posting lately. So uh, we're going to have our holiday weekend here uh, starting um, this evening, and then um, I'm already lining up interviews and things for the rest of August and September. So uh, it'll be good to get back into the interview mode after all these panel sessions. But today, what we have is a panel session. It is the topic of responsible mining, and we have the moderator is Andrew Cheetel. He's the Senior Vice President for Africa at Forbes and Manhattan Group, and you'll uh, remember him as the Executive Director for many years with the PDAC and parted ways there earlier in the year. Uh, you know the old expression, the best revenge is uh, living well, so Andrew is definitely living well. And the panel is Sandra Gogol. She is a partner and Aboriginal leader at Miller Thompson. Lisa Davis, she's the CEO of Pear Tree Securities. And we have Aidan Davey. He's the chief operating officer of the International Council on uh, Mining and Metals. But first, let's give a thanks to our two podcast sponsors. We have the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, led by entrepreneur Joe Grosso. Their website is grossogroup.com, and there are three public companies as part of the Grosso Group, Golden Arrow Resources with uh, precious metals, Blue Sky Uranium, and Argentina Lithium and Energy, all in Argentina mainly. And we have a bit of news here out of Blue Sky Uranium. They are uh, they have their Amarillo Grande Uranium Vanadium Project in Rio Negro in Argentina, and they are completing metallurgical testing and that's to support a preliminary economic assessment that it is doing and uh, wants to complete that by year end and is also doing a bit more exploration and all their uh, test work is being done at the Saskatchewan Research Council in Saskatchewan. Our second sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of companies exploring and developing mineral projects in the Yukon and their website is at yukonminingalliance.ca and they have a terrific Twitter feed at at InvestYukon, all one word. Yeah, go to those two sites as a, a great collection of all that's going on in the Yukon. Some news out of the Yukon, you have Metallic Minerals, one of the Alliance members, and they just completed a $1.5 million non-broker private placement. Almost 15% of the private placement is taken by management and directors, which is a good sign. And that money is going to be uh, going towards ongoing exploration and development at Metallic Minerals' Kino Silver Project 
in the high-grade historic Kino Hill Silver District in the Yukon, plus also their McKay Hill Silver Project. We'll take a quick break and return with that responsible mining panel out of London with uh, Andrew, Sandra, Lisa, and Aiden. Thank you very much. Let me um, just introduce the panel to start off with. First on my uh, right here, Lisa Davis, and uh, Lisa is the Chief Executive Officer with uh, Pear Tree Securities. Now, Lisa, if I remember rightly, is it now nearly a billion dollars or so flow through that you've uh, invested and help invest? Over a billion and going strong. <laughs> so, no small change, and we're going to examine a little bit about responsible mining in the future and what that means for the investors and how the investors are changing. Then further along, uh, we, we have uh, Sandra Gogol, and she's a partner and Aboriginal leader with Milner Thompson LLP. And I think this is the second year in a row, Sandra, that we've, we've done this. And, uh, and again, in terms of responsible mining worldwide, Indigenous relations and, and local communities is increasingly important. And I know that you've done uh, some very leading work in that area. And then on the end, uh, to, to round off the panel, uh, Aidan Davis. And uh, Aidan is the Chief Operating Officer for the International Council of Mines and Metals. And uh, Aidan's uh, uh, council there represents well over 20 of the world's leading mining companies, and I think well over 60% of annual production of uh, most metals and minerals. And they get together throughout the year, and we'll hear from Aidan in terms of what is um, the, on the minds of leading companies throughout the world. But we, we find ourselves in a very interesting space, as we, we, we did hear from Ross, and increasingly we're finding a confluence of, of pressures uh, on the mining industry. I think for the first time what we're also seeing is consumers pushing all the way from essentially the, the, the shop floor, uh, the, the supermarket if you like, all the way back to producers. We, we, we're now seeing at conferences, for example, uh, at BMO uh, in Florida this year, people like BMW coming into the audience, wanting to actually visit and go to the mine gates and to see that the products, the aluminum or the nickel or the, or the cobalt, is actually being mined in a fair and responsible manner. Consumers, for example, don't wish to have coal tan, cobalt, tantalum, that is in the iPhones that's been mined by seven-year-old seven slave children. Um, they want to be ensured that the metallic paints on their cars, the micas, for example, Again, mined in India, uh, there's been a big case where this, this was uh, also exposed as being mined by seven-year-old children. So people who are buying their BMWs uh, and BMWs, in fact, don't want to be embarrassed in that way. So there's a lot coming together. Uh, we're seeing activism of shareholders. We're seeing activism of communities, seeing that they want their uh, fair share. So let's start off, and, and Aidan, I'd like to start off with you. At the ICMM, uh, some leading companies, some leading thoughts. What is on the minds of, of, of the leaders of our industry, the, those that are representing the large companies, Glencore, Anglo-American, and so on? Yeah, look, thanks for the question, Andrew. And I guess be, be, before diving into talking about sort of what's on their minds and what are they doing about it, I want to say a little bit about some of the drivers that's really shaping the response from the industry. And, you know, there's the, kind of three that I want to touch upon. And the first of those is what I refer to as the, the rise in the ethical consuming-facing companies. There was a lot of discussion some years ago about this notion of an ethical consumer. 
And in fact, in the UK, we have a, a magazine called Ethical Consumer, and it's celebrating its 30th anniversary next year. But I think it's fair to say that the ethical consumer, up until fairly recently, has been fairly elusive uh, and has also been fairly weak in terms of kind of purchasing power. And that's changing profoundly. And what we're seeing now, I think, is the rise in ethical consumer-facing companies. And, and this is partly motivated by legislative pressures uh, and NGO advocacy activity, both in, in the US and Europe. But we are seeing many, many companies, I think, adopting you know, uh, an increasingly assertive approach to the notion of responsible sourcing, <clears throat> driven by some of these campaigns. So companies like Apple, uh, Intel, uh, BMW, and others, they're increasingly concerned that only responsibly mined products are used in the production of what they ultimately pass on to consumers. Um, and this has resulted in several uh, initiatives, some of them commodity-specific, some of them cross-commodity, that are really aimed at trying to ensure that materials supplied to companies that care about these things have been produced responsibly. One of the ones that I think is, is, is noteworthy is the Responsible Minerals Initiative, and that's a coalition of about 130 major automotive and electronics companies. And they've collectively come together to try and define what are the social and environmental issues that they want to see responsibly managed? How, how would companies go about doing that to aim to eliminate those risks from their supply chains? So I think that companies that can, can demonstrate that they responsibly produce metals and minerals face a real opportunity, and those that can't, there is the risk of an existential threat. But at the same time, I think the legitimacy of the industry is being challenged. And in particular, conflicts around natural resource projects uh, are becoming more prevalent. Um, we have research that backs it up. I won't go into the numbers, but certainly the sense is that they are becoming more prevalent. So when I talk about conflict, you know, when you really boil it down, it comes down to two main factors. The first is it's around contested perspectives over the ownership of subsurface resources. So most governments have declared ownership of subsurface resources in the interests of uh, the, the, the citizenry. Understandably, the communities that live above those resources feel a degree of ownership of what lies beneath their land. And invariably, companies that pay to acquire the rights to develop those feel a sense of ownership. The second challenge is con competing perspectives over the locus of decision-making. Most governments self-identify as the arbiters of whether or not development should proceed and how. But increasingly, you know, citizens around mining projects are demanding a voice, particularly when government is either remote or often absent. And so I think where those two factors collide, you often get to a situation of conflict. For me, this suggests a need to explore new approaches over the next decade. And something that we've talked about at ICMM in the past is this notion of a social contract of mining. You know, in practice, what that might mean is that this sets out not just the benefits that the different parties should get, but what are the reciprocal obligations of government, companies, and civil society if you were to develop those projects more harmoniously. I'm going to stop there. Well, that's an amazing segue, uh, Sandra, in, into local communities, in, indigenous people. This is where you spend your life, uh, and the intersection of those communities with the mining industry. If I remember correctly, uh, Mark Kutter finally quoted um, a couple of years ago that about $25 billion of assets or projects are not moving forward because of conflict with communities. Maybe with that, I can hand it over to you. So from the community perspective, um, what do you think? So I think 
If uh, we define responsible mining in terms of social and environmental best practices, there is a real genuine desire and willingness on, on part of industry, uh, which is the, the clients that I represent, to actually work with the indigenous populations and to develop environmental practices that go above and beyond even what the regulatory requirements are. And when, when you look at the efforts that are made to engage with the indigenous communities, they are above and beyond the legal requirements and they're moving more towards like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Many companies now are looking to incorporate that as part of their framework, their corporate policy, and, and therefore make their decisions uh, accordingly. And the projects are really being developed in a manner that is um, respectful of traditional land use um, by Indigenous peoples that are incorporating traditional knowledge on an equal footing with Western science and as well as um, developing these social agreements, like you've mentioned, that sees a revenue stream and long-lasting results to communities for the life of the project. And, and even now, more creative, I'm finding, and here's a couple of examples of projects that I'm just working on right now, whereby the company has developed a tailings management board, which is made up of equal representation of indigenous peoples that are affected by the project the company representatives and independent experts um, and technicians to manage the tailings pond for the entire life of the project. And that addresses that sense of loss of control or non-equal decision making um, on project development. And knowing that they're in, in, in an area that is usually where most of the concerns are identified is around tailings management. The other interesting development that we're seeing more is a joint environmental um, panel that's actually formed in parallel to the existing regulatory structures and processes that are in place. And this panel then would be made up of indigenous leaders and decision makers as well as, as companies appearing before them to assess the project and the impacts on their rights and then as a result of that forming recommendations that will feed into the ministerial regulated process. So from the work that I've been doing, I've been, I've been seeing um, lots of progress in the area of responsible mining, for sure. Yeah, thank you very much. And Lisa, just to bring you in here, I mean, a billion dollars in Canada flow through. This is money that goes onto the ground. It's largely going into the communities that Sandra's talking about. When you're raising the money and you're talking with the investors, those that are, as the saying goes, putting a hand to wallet reflex, um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing any changes these days in, in terms of responsible investing? Has, has the conversation started to change? Yeah, we actually have been seeing some change, and I, and I think that's attributable in um, part to the change in how um, exploration and development financing in Canada is being done. If you go back five or seven years ago, there was a much more sort of disparate group of retail investors, albeit a lot of them through limited partnerships. But what's actually happened in more recent years is that there's been a real transformation and actually the, the platform that Pear Tree developed is now the largest conduit of uh, funds coming into exploration financing in junior Canadian uh, companies. So. The business that we're in actually um, is a hybrid business that's linked very much to philanthropy and the groups that are the source of capital for us for the most part 
are high net worth and ultra high net worth families that are multi-generational. And as we get down to the younger generations, we are starting to see more questions being asked about how funds are being used. And in while we do some financing in oil and gas, there seems to be more pushback against oil and gas, whether that's mm-hmm. valid or not, I don't know. But with mining, I think it's, it's a conversation, and it's usually a successful conversation in which there's an understanding that Canadian standards actually are, are high, and um, you know there is a willingness, as you said, to mine responsibly, and there are a lot of benefits for northern development, for um, economic economic opportunity for Indigenous communities, and so that conversation usually goes well. The other thing I think that we're seeing is that similarly in sort of the transformation in the way that uh, funding is getting done in this sector is that there's been a lot more strategic investment by producers into junior exploration companies in Canada. So we've worked with companies like Barrick and Kinross that are putting money into uh, junior companies who I would say, you know, not not that they're you know doing anything harmful, but maybe wouldn't be as progressive as, as some of the more mature companies yeah. that have really thought through some of these CSR issues. And um, you know, in evaluating investments, if you're you know a, a gold corp or that kind of a company, your your sort of criteria and the scorecard you use in evaluating includes some of the um, things that you know you've developed as a more mature company so that's I think having a little bit of influence and I think the the last thing I would say is that I'm seeing more sort of indirect pressure from kind of advocacy groups that are disappointed that the sector that we're dealing in maybe aren't being as progressive as they could be as a matter of fact uh, a recent example, I was at the launch of something called the Canadian Gender and Good Governance Alliance a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. And I, I think I think particularly in the junior space where, you know, that some of the existential issues are, are paramount and they're not maybe thinking as progressively on certain fronts as they otherwise could, but, but because of some um, progress in, in areas like gender parity and diversity and inclusion not really moving as quickly, particularly in the junior space, as a lot of people would like to, to see happen. Organizations like this are coming together and saying things aren't happening quickly enough, and if they don't change voluntarily, I think we might see the imposition of rules and regulations. There's talk of things like quotas for women on boards and that sort of thing. So I think it's sort of in everyone's interest to maybe control the process and start thinking more progressively before these things become mandated. So it's a really important point, Lisa. I mean, just as a quick uh, aside, uh, Parliament Square had its first female uh, statue put on it yesterday. Yes. Right. Um, 111 years later, but uh, there we are. Um, but this is a very important point. I mean, we've talked about the money side of things, but to stay in, I'd love to just build on what you've talked about. The, the people side of it, you know, the, the millennials, we're of an age, I think, uh, where our children are either in their teens or they're in their 20s. And there's certainly, I'm picking up, don't wish to work for an uncool industry. 
They don't wish to work for an unethical industry. You, and as the, the money is uh, from the baby boomers, the older generation moves in family trusts, which you're dealing with, um, moves to those younger generations. Is, are you seeing, how, how would you describe that awareness coming through? Um, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll sort of answer with my PDAC hat on as a mm. director and, and co-chair of the Finance and Taxation mm. Committee. Um, there's been a lot of discussion recently of um, actually this, this just coming to the end of a five-year strategic planning process. And, and and it was mentioned actually by Ross Beattie when he spoke. I mean, this, the perceptions or misconceptions about the industry, they, they seem to be uh, stories that are, are told by those that are anti-mining industry. And I think that the, um, you know, we just sort of, seem to, to see the same thing over and over again, that there's just kind of a, a, a generally bad perception that seems to be, um, you know, the, those are the stories that are getting out there. Yeah. And I think the, the industry associations and, and others that can have some influence have, have really got to get better at telling the good stories and talking about how responsibly the industry is behaving out of Canada. Not that there aren't accidents or there aren't the odd bad actor or anything like no. that, but certainly um, I think that, uh, you know, if good, responsible Canadian companies adhering to um, high standards aren't the ones that are going to be looking for and developing mines, somebody else is going to step in and do it and probably not, you know, be as mindful of the things that are important. So. I think somehow we've got to really get that to the top of the agenda, learn to, to tell our stories a little bit better, our good stories. And I'd like to skip straight from that to, to you, Aidan, because I know from my previous involvement with ICMM, this was a, an issue of great angst with many of the uh, CEOs. Uh, what's happening in terms of getting the story of mining out there that uh, perhaps we're no longer the industry of the 1950s? Uh, yeah. It's a cool place to be. I, I think Lisa makes an incredibly important point because... Um, you know, as an industry, I think we've been pretty bad about telling the positive stories. And, in, and look, I think you've got to be self-reflective about this as an organisation that works on issues relating to sustainability and responsible mining. You know, ICMM has not been particularly good at telling those stories either. I think our primary focus for the first 10 years or so of our existence, we've been around now for about 15 years, was really trying to... Uh, bring to the marketplace, if you like, a, a whole series of guidance documents that would give practical expression to the principles that the member companies that are part of ICMM established at our foundation. And so I think, you know, very, very strong focus on how do we bring to life statements almost of aspiration and make it practical for what companies can do in the ground. But I think gradually we started to shift into a space of recognizing that unless we begin to tell uh, an alternative story and you know, give me a, create a different narrative around what mining means, then there is a risk that people just don't begin to recognize or acknowledge the good the industry does. And so we're currently in the second year of a pilot um, campaign to really try and talk about what we refer to as mining with principles. Uh, and at the core of that mining with principles campaign is a demonstration that not just our metals and minerals critically important to modern living, but increasingly those metals and minerals are being produced in a really responsible way. And, and the latest part of that campaign has been to try and show how that is actually profoundly impacting upon the lives of people 
in the host communities where mining takes place. So a lot of work to do. We're just kind of, I would say we're dipping our toes in the water. There's more to do, but I think it's showing promising signs of having some traction. And, and Sanjay, do, do you, would you agree? I mean, one of the things is that we, we, we talk about a trust deficit, and if we're talking about responsible mining in the future, we obviously want to have enhanced trust. What are the communities saying to you? Well, it's, in, it's interesting because I, I agree that the perception is, is not sort of the reality in which I practice because I see all the great things that mining industry does when we negotiate this, these agreements. And perhaps, you know, the, the challenge and part of the problem is that these agreements are confidential, right? So, you know, nobody quite knows how much money is actually flowing into the communities, how much say and negotiations and consultation and engagement that's actually have taken place years before even your, your project description gets filed. And, and these boards and bodies around decision making, um, the, the contracts, the procurement opportunities, I mean we're working with the community now and we're looking to jointly develop a power supply to the mine, right? I mean we could do it ourselves for a lot cheaper, but we're looking at giving the equity to the community so that they then have the project after the mine is gone 15 years from there. And those are the stories, unfortunately, that don't get shared because of the confidentiality around these agreements. And now there's a new piece of legislation, well, it's not new anymore, actually, which is the Extractive Sector Transparency Measures, Measures Act. And within that, companies now have to disclose, if it's greater than 99000 a year, you have to disclose payments that are being made to Aboriginal governments. So eventually, I think that at least the dollars, you know, will become more recognized or more um, public around what we're doing um, with the communities. And the other sort of um, thing that uh, we're trying to do is when there is a deal that is reached and it is positive for both sides, and, and well, if you have a deal generally, it is seen as positive, that both the company and the communities jointly announce it, joint press release, um, and, and do things in the community so that the communities know because, you know, unfortunately the only ones you hear about are the projects that are opposed on the ground because yeah. they hit yeah. the front page. <laughs> but uh, usually there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes as to why that's the case. Yeah. You mentioned some groundbreaking um, legislation from Canada, of course, last year, uh, or earlier this year, I think, Canada announced it's going to have an ombudsperson for uh, Canadian businesses overseas, and I stress this is mining, oil and gas, and also textile industries to, to start off with. Do you see that having a positive impact uh, in, in terms of behavior? And maybe I'll ask both Lisa and yourself to, to comment on that. Again, I think this is sort of uh, with, with my PDAC hat on. I mean, I think, you know, PDAC clearly is a strong supporter of, of maintaining Canada as a world leader and mm. resp responsible mineral exploration practices and, um, you know, and has been very involved in, you know, I think many leading efforts, including things like the E3+, Plus, which is, I, I believe, the first ever guidance on responsible exploration. So, I mean, PDAC supports efforts by the Canadian government always to, you know, Im improve responsible business. But um, I think while PDEC has said that it will, will work with the government and with other stakeholders in trying to develop the office and the mandate of the ombudsperson, a lot of it, I think, comes down to how it's designed because, you know, while we want to enable effective dispute resolution processes, um, and, and there are some already, I would say, we also have to maintain the competitive, competitiveness of Canadian players in the industry. And so I think a, a couple of the things that I 
personally also have a, a little bit of trouble with is the fact that mining, well, turned out not to be completely singled out. They've added a couple of other industries. But, you know, if, if you're advocating for something that is supposed to encourage and, and uh, responsible behavior outside of Canada and redress any issues, uh, I don't know why that should be only for three specific industries. So that's one thing that's a little troubling. And then there's a few other things that I think, you know, need to be worked out properly. Like what triggers the ability to um, seek the redress of the ombudsperson. I, the, the term is significant direct harm, but, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. And, um, and, and then there's the worry of frivolous or vexatious claims by those who would like to, um, you know, depict the mining industry in a negative light. Mm -hmm. So overall, you know, great that, that you know, there's the, we can always do better, but how that office is designed, I think, is really important. Yeah, crucially important, but perhaps a, a way of how things are moving forward in terms of responsibility and um, transparency uh, of, of the industry. And again, transparency builds trust, mm -hmm. and the narrative gets better. Then I shall ask our esteemed panelists maybe just to uh, close off then. Um, now, we'll start with you, Aidan, and then we'll work our way back this way. If you were to sort of put your mind forward in just a few sentences, responsible mining, 2030, what do you think our industry is going to be look like and how is it, how is it going to be perceived in society? Yeah, I, I guess in some ways I, I would go back to, uh, and this sounds terribly self-serving, but I will go back to the organizational vision of ICMM. And that is that you know, um, mining is a, is a respected industry, trusted to, to act responsibly and to contribute to sustainable development. You know, we recognize that that vision is some way off in terms of where we are today, but I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that by 2030 that vision could well be realized. And I think that's because both in terms of uh, the, the issue around you know, increasingly we, the expectations around what responsible supply of materials looks like, there is convergence around that. And so I think that that is going to bring about a change in perception for, you know, of the industry. I think secondly, the incredibly powerful role the industry plays today developmentally, both in developing countries but also you know, in developed nations like Canada, I think that's being recognized. And you know, the art of the possible there is not so much being codified, but it's, you know, we are seeing more and more examples of constructive collaborations between companies, governments, and civil society organizations. So, I think that's a realistic prospect uh, in the next 12 years. Because we'll actually become partners, right? <laughs> there you go. Good, excellent. Well, thank you very much. And maybe just a quick comment. I mean, even in my own career, I mean, when I started, it was a very unsafe industry. And yet now, I believe we're safer than the food and beverage industry. So mm -hmm. we, we can change and we can grow and we can develop. Sandra. I think if I were to sort of look down the road, I think the projects will be developed um, consistent with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I think it's while it's not law in Canada, it has been adopted uh, by our country, and you're going to see that implemented whether it's through the courts or whether it's through our legislation or policy development. I think we will see that, which means then that projects will have to be developed with the free prior informed consent of Indigenous peoples. And if we're moving in that direction, then the impetus is to try to reach agreement with the communities that, that will outline how the project could be developed that's to the mutual satisfaction of both parties but also responsible socially acceptable and environmentally 
environmentally safe. Yeah. But just on, on the, your last question dealing with um, uh, overseas projects and things, for the indigenous people, the reputation of a company is critical, right? They look into who are they doing business with, and they are very skeptical about companies coming into their territories, let alone companies coming in with bad reputation elsewhere, because you know, the, the United Nations Forum is, is not new to them. They make their views known, they make their concerns known, and, and so to the extent that you know, there are offenses and violations you know, in projects dealing with indigenous populations worldwide, that will affect you know, their perception of a company coming in to, to do business with them. And of course, in an increasingly transparent world, you can't hide. That's exactly right. All right. So obviously, um, we're growing strong with the amount of dollars in the industry. So in 2030, how many billion dollars are we going to have annually uh, invested? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I hope it's two or three or five times as much. But I, but I do think that uh, you know, certainly we can do things that are consistent with the trends that hopefully will support a positive reputation for the yeah. industry, such as, you know, being consistent with a low-carbon economy. I mean, we, we there's been lots of talk about the materials required for batteries and, uh, you know, electric vehicles and all that sort of thing. So yeah. certainly being nimble and, and uh, being able to produce those types of things responsibly. Environmentally, I think, you know, we're, we are starting to see more um, projects use uh, for instance, like wind wind power at the mine site instead of um, instead of lots of diesel, so that's you know a, a direction we can move in. And I I mean one thing I mentioned already, but it's a, a, a bit of a bee in my bonnet. I'd like to see more progressive diversity practices. Um, I'd like to you know we it's been demonstrated that that more diverse senior management and boards um, uh, results in in you know better financial outcomes and I think that the uh, the, the hundreds of uh, venture exchange companies really sort of have not turned their attention to moving the dial on that so um, I think that's going to happen and um, I think that's probably it for me yep, no, very very good and I couldn't agree more with you by the way with that, uh, thank you very much. If you'd like to join me just in thanking our esteemed panelists, thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and all our panelists. That was an excellent talk. And on the, the gender equal thing, I had some good news from uh, Ian Pierce, uh, chairman of New Gold. New Gold is actually up to 40% of uh, female staff now. And the industry average is, I think, 17 18%. And it's good, I think, to also to emphasize those positive moments as well, as everyone on the, the panel is doing. That's the episode for this week. I'm going to turn it around and quickly uh, put out episode 115 with the very final Canadian Mining Symposium panel. Thanks. Bye-bye.